All right. Good stuff. Needed for me tonight. Um, if you have a Bible or if you have a phone, you can open up your Bible um, to the book of John, chapter 14. And if you are a kid, child, who wants to have more fun in the building next door than we will have here, you're welcome to go and join them. Join Miss D and Scarlett and Faith, and they'll be over next door in the house. And they're going to have a good time over there. Um, so tonight we're going to head in a little bit of a new direction um, with our teaching here at Praxis. And I have a couple slides, McKenna. So uh, Mackenzie, McKenna, it's Mackenzie. That's correct. <laughs> our, uh, our, our sound crew, our sound booth crew, our um, two amazing 17-year-olds who are just killing it up there. So we appreciate you guys. Um, so this thing has been happening, this kingdom community deal, for about two years. We're coming up on two years. And when we originally started, we were praying about something entirely different. Um, we thought that we were going to be buying a building um, over on the east side of Lodi. We thought we were going to be planting a teen center, um, or sorry, a community center. And, and as we started just walking through that process and praying about that process, God had different things for us. Um, and so one of the things we did early on as the plan started to change is we, we had to sort of find an anchor. We had to figure out what our core commitments as a community were going to be. Um, and so we worked on this. Um, I remember getting out a whiteboard. Um, we scribbled on the whiteboard. Uh, it looked kind of like this, the rantings and scribblings of a crazy person um, as we kind of walked through this process of figuring out what defines us as a community. Um, what, what, what are going to be our core values? What are going to be our core commitments? Um, and so we established these, what we called core values, things that are non-negotiable to us. Things like prayer and a commitment to mission and a commitment to authenticity. We're going to be who we are. Um, a commitment to simplicity um, that we're never going to get ahead of ourselves or, or think that um, we need to put more into this thing than, 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 than where God's taking us. And so we worked through this. We prayed over it. It took us weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, but we wound up with this beautiful set of core commitments, these values that drive us. Um, and so I kind of wanted to dust those off because it's been almost a year since we did that. Um, and we're going to spend the next eight or so Praxis sessions just kind of getting into each one of these. Because um, ultimately these things are not just about us. Uh, they're what we believe the church was meant to be in this world. Um, as we read the scriptures and as we look at what the early communities of Jesus followers looked like, uh, these are the things that we see in them. This is how they lived. This is how they did it. Um, and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through these things these next few weeks. One of the things we could say is maybe we want to find the praxis of the early church, right? That word praxis is the place where our faith and our actions meet. We believe this about God and that is that is how we have determined to live our lives. It defines how we live. Uh, we want to find the praxis of the early church. How did these early Christians, these early followers of Jesus live? Because they changed the world. Um, and we you know, have talked a lot here about how in, in different ways throughout history, sometimes the church loses its way. They lose that early church praxis. And so can we find that? Um, so we want a little bit of that here. So tonight we're going to actually look at two of these core commitments, which we'll get to at the end. But to get there, you have to open up your Bible first. So I want you to have the book of John open in chapter 14. It's going to be really important, John 14, verse 19. Um, and we'll get there in a couple minutes. If you've been following along in person or online, uh, you will have noticed that we've been covering the book of John for a long time here. Um, and we've been covering specifically the miracles of Jesus. Um, 
Because in the book of John, you have this building list of miracles. John calls them signs that Jesus performs. Um, and each of these miracles, as we've walked through them, have taught us these beautiful lessons about this life that Jesus comes to offer. But there's a larger narrative uh, going on behind all the miracles as well. So there are seven total of the miracles, and scholars going all the way back to the fourth century AD have called the Gospel of John the Book of the Seven Signs. And I want uh, Mackenzie just put, put up really briefly. Um, I've got them listed on the, on the screen behind you if you're here in person. I'm going to go through them if you're online, so don't worry about it. Um, I want to walk through these miracles so it gives you a picture of the way things kind of build, uh, the way the signs build on themselves in the, in the Gospel of John. So in John chapter 2, remember this is where we started weeks and weeks ago, Jesus turns water into wine. Um, John chapter 4, there's a healing that takes place. This Roman official's son is healed. Uh, John chapter 5, there's a healing at the pool of Bethesda, right? And, and Jesus says, pick up your pallet and walk. Um, John chapter 6, there's a, the feeding of the 5,000, which we learned, this is a couple weeks ago, um, isn't necessarily about food, right? There's so much more going on there as Jesus says, I've come to give you true life, right? Food that satisfies. Uh, John 6, you also have Jesus walking on water, um, which is one of the signs. Jesus actually walks across the Sea of Galilee. Um, really, he's actually running away from the crowd that want to make him king. So Jesus, is, when he walks on water, not many people know he's running away from everybody. Um, he's trying to, uh, to, to uh, get away. Um, John 9, you have the healing of a blind man. We didn't get to see this one. Um, we need to go through it. And then John 11, you have the story of Lazarus. Um, and, you know, whether you've been a Christian all your life or you haven't uh, hung around a church that much, you've heard the name Lazarus, right? Lazarus was uh, this first uh, sign of a person being raised from the dead. Um, he was dead and he came back to life. Now, one of the things you start to see in this book as you, as you see those things up there is these signs kind of build on each other. Um, you probably have noticed this as we've walked through them. You start out with water and wine and a party, but then you end up with someone dead coming back to life. Um, and so there's an increasing intensity in the book of John. Uh, the story is building and building and building on itself. And then, all of a sudden, in John chapter 11, the signs stop. You have these seven signs, and then they stop. And then Jesus enters into a conversation about what is about to happen. This starts in John chapter 14. There's this dinner, this meal that Jesus has with his disciples. It lasts three chapters. Um, Long, long meal, and you should read all three chapters, John 14 through 17, read the whole thing, because it's this beautiful, basically reads like a love letter uh, between Jesus and his followers, which really represent us. Um, he says something to them at this meal that is deeply important. We're going to come back that, to it at the end. Um, you get to the end of the book of John, so after all of this, okay, and there's one more sign at the end of the book of John. What is that one? Resurrection right? Jesus himself is raised from the dead. This is what we celebrated just this last Sunday at Easter. Um, Jesus dies on a Roman execution stake. He's buried, and then he is found to be very much alive. Um, Mary turns from the empty tomb, and he sees Jesus standing there, right? And if you were there on Sunday, who does Jesus, or who does Mary think Jesus is right at first? He's the gardener, right? Like, this must be the gardener. Um, in the book of John, there are seven signs, okay? Ancient Jewish thought, in ancient Jewish thought, seven is a number that they would have closely associated with the story of creation. Uh, so the story in the book of Genesis goes that God created the earth 
in seven days, right? Or he completed his work on the seventh day. And so seven in ancient Jewish thought becomes this sacred number that they connected to perfection, to God completing his creation. And you have that number come up over and over and over again. And John is very intentional with his seven signs, okay? Um, and again, they connected it to creation, to God, his work of literally making the world, okay? In the creation story, God makes, so go to the next slide here, and I'm going to show you how this all works together. Uh, in the creation story, God makes the earth good, okay? So man is able to enjoy the fruit that comes from it, okay? You see that in John chapter 2. Uh, there is no sickness, right, as God creates the world. Things are in their perfection. That's John chapter 4. So you can see Jesus interacting with the creation in this kind of strange way. Human beings are created to walk, run, interact with the world, Right, John chapter 5. Um, creation provides everything that we need, right? The food and the animals, they multiply on their own, right? The provision is multiplied in God's creation. Uh, John chapter 6, creation is not evil, okay? When Jesus walks across the water, in Jewish thought, the, the water, the sea was this scary thing. It represented evil that you hear about in the Old Testament, sea monsters, and it was this evil kind of terrifying thing. When a storm came up, it was like God's wrath, his vengeance. And so when Jesus walks across the water and then the waves obey him, it's like saying the sea, like the creation, it's not evil, it's good, right? Like there's nothing scary to be found here. And so you can see Jesus kind of asserting himself in all these different ways. Um, uh, the people can interact with God and walk with him as he is. They can see him and not be afraid when the man who was blind can see. It literally says he can see Jesus as he is. He realizes that Jesus is Lord. He bows down and worships him right away. Right in the garden you have this beautiful intact relationship between people and God. They're able to walk with him. They're able to see him and not be terrified and not be afraid. Um, and then obviously in the story of the creation there is no death. Right? In the garden, as things were perfect, there was no death to begin with. And again, the whole thing, the whole story of creation back in the book of Genesis takes place in a garden. Okay? Now, I realize some of these are looser connections, but you can definitely see there's an assertion of Jesus' power and authority over creation going on all the way through the book of John. Um, and scholars have noticed this. Okay? Now, if you know the biblical story, even a little bit, you know that in Genesis chapter 3, after the story of creation, death enters the story. Right? There's something about a snake, and there's a, they're, they're in a garden, a snake comes into the garden, there's something about a forbidden fruit, right? And, and the man and the woman eat it, and at that point, death enters the story. And the story from there takes kind of a nosedive, and the rest of the Bible is basically the story of God working to get back into relationship with his people. Um, now, we said there were seven signs in the book of John. If there are seven signs in the book of John, then the resurrection of Jesus is the eighth sign. If seven refers to the first week of creation, if that's connected to God's creative story, then what would the eighth sign be? It's the first day of a brand new creation, right? And Jesus is mistaken for the gardener, right? These things are not coincidental in John's story. These ancient writers were brilliant and they knew exactly what they were doing. Welcome in, you guys. Um, absolutely brilliant, right? Mary turns around and sees Jesus and she doesn't recognize him. She sees him as the gardener, right? It's the first day of a brand new creation, right? First day of a brand new thing being done. 
Now, we can learn so many things from this. There's so much going on there. And please understand, that's just one of the themes in the book of John, right? I've just picked out one. There's so many more, right? But there's so much going on with that creation story kind of being woven through the gospel of John. So many things you can learn. I'll just highlight three for you here, okay? First, the old creation has a death problem, right? Death entered the story. The new creation that began when Jesus was raised from the dead, right? New creation doesn't. Uh, When Jesus is resurrected, death exits the story, okay? Or at least this first sign of death no longer being a necessary end, right, to the creation story. Um, And this new creation that begins at the resurrection, the old curse has been broken, okay? Some Christians talk about how death has been defeated. We just sang it, right? Death is defeated, the king is alive. Sometimes I think we haven't even begun to understand just how beautiful that is. Um, because, and this is second, the story of Jesus is the story of a brand new creation beginning right here in the middle of this one, okay? It's the story of a creation bubbling up all around us in the middle of the old one. One of the things you notice is when Jesus comes back, this is profoundly important, okay? When Jesus comes back from the dead, is he a soul? Is he a ghost? No. He has a body, (laughs) right? Jesus does not come back as a disembodied soul. He doesn't come back to life as a ghost or as, as some sort of mystical figure floating around. He's very real. You can, you can interact with him. You can touch him. He can speak to you, right? He eats breakfast with his disciples. Uh, he's given a restored body. Uh, maybe you've been around Christians, um, You've been around churches and somehow you've gotten the impression from the way we talk sometimes that the whole point of the story is that you and I get to escape this world with our souls and go to heaven. Um, In a way, yes. But if Jesus is the first one to go from death to life, if he's the one to demonstrate that whole deal, Jesus put on flesh and blood once again, right? Which means that matter matters, right? Which means that the physical world is important to God, the stuff that we see all around us, right? Everything around us, our friends, our school, uh, the fact that we're going back to school, our environment, right? Uh, The people living in abject poverty around us, the little kid who passes you by on the streets and you just kind of have a, you wonder what his story is, what his life is like, all of these things, all of it, everything in this world matters to Jesus. When he came back, as a physical being to interact with the world again. He's saying, my goal is not just to teach you how to get to heaven when you die, right? My goal is to begin to redeem this world right in the middle of the old one, right? All of it matters to Jesus. And so again, his goal is not just to teach us how to get to heaven someday, but how to begin to live life now, right? To redeem our lives and our hearts now. And so addiction right? Suffering, oppression, anxiety, stress, lack of food for dinner, right? It may not all go away today. Matter of fact, suffering for a lot of us might still be a part of our journey. But when Jesus rose again as a flesh and blood human being, he made a declaration that was what matters to him is not far away, off in heaven somewhere. What matters to him is here, right? You and I in the midst of this creation. Uh, There's a reason That when Jesus taught his followers to pray, he taught us to pray that your kingdom would come, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? This place and everything happening in it matters to God. 
So the whole story of the Gospel of John, a major theme of it is that it serves to put the world on notice that through Jesus, God has begun the restoration and redemption of this world. Through Jesus, the process has begun. It's not complete yet, right? We can see all around us that it's not done, right? But make no mistake, the life through Jesus, the life of heaven has broken through into this world and it is now at work. Hope and healing and grace and life are available to us in abundance now. Now that brings me to kind of the, the final kind of main observation about all of this, okay? And I told you to turn to the book of John, chapter 14. Finally, we're getting there, okay? Uh, remember we said that the signs stop, right? The seven signs stop, and then Jesus has a meal with his disciples. I just want to highlight a couple things going on here. Um, very truly, this is John 14, 12. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. i read that again. I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. If you've actually been reading the book of John <laughs> up to this point, is your mind kind of blown right now? John is the book of the seven signs, Right? What Jesus is essentially saying is that this work of demonstrating the life of heaven, of bringing healing and grace and life and the hope of a new creation, this work is now going to happen through you. Okay? I'm going to empower you. And at this point, I should do a whole teaching on the Holy Spirit and how that works, but I'm not going to do that. I want you guys to work through that in your KC groups. You're going to work through several passages that have to do with the Holy Spirit and how God comes to us and empowers us. Um, don't miss your KC group this week, okay? If you're, if you're not here, you need to make it to your KC group. Really important, okay? Um, but for right now, the point is to stir us up a little bit, okay? The point is to kind of wet our whistle a little bit, make us hungry for more. For now, what I want you to know is that when it says, on that day, right? This is uh, John 14, 19. Read this with me. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Read verse 20 again. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. When it says this, on that day, guys, especially leading out of the resurrection, we need to understand that day is today. Right? On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. That day is today. That time is now. Okay? We are, you and I, living in the time that Jesus is talking about here. His presence is not just a concept. Okay, Jesus is in us. He is very much alive, right? You will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Do you guys realize that? Sometimes I feel like we don't realize that, right? That you are in Jesus and he is in you. Are you aware of that right now? The very presence of Jesus is in this room. Did you know that tomorrow... When you go out into your world, his purpose is to unleash the hope of new creation through you. Right? Do you see the implications of all of this? His purpose is to unleash new creation through all of us. This is why we say it this way, okay? This is one of our core commitments at Kingdom Community. If you can put up the next slide. 
they're on it. They get it? All right, so the second one there, okay? We're going to get back to the first one because that's probably the most important one in the list, okay? But the second one there, it says that we maintain a state of readiness and anticipation, knowing that Jesus is always up to something and is waiting to show us. Those of you online who can't read it, we maintain a state of readiness and anticipation, knowing that Jesus is always up to something and is waiting to show us, right? Implications of this can't be understated. It means that when you see something and you know it's not right, whatever it is, injustice, poverty, broken relationships, right, racism, when you see something going on and, and, and you see it and your heart hurts and the tears well up in your eyes and you can't live another day unless you engage somehow with it, you guys, the implications of John are that that just might be the Father in Jesus and Jesus in you right? These things get stirred up in us for a reason. Because when we said yes to Jesus, we became not only children of God, which we did, right? We are children of God, right? But we also became residents of a brand new creation, which means that we might have new instincts now, right? We might be able to tell when things in the current creation are not as they should be. And so we live moment by moment, day by day, ready for God to show us these things. We anticipate it. We know that Jesus is working. We know that he's restoring. We know that whatever it is that he's up to, he's up to something, and he wants to show us. But, and there's a major but here, okay? We can't get ahead of ourselves because it is Jesus who has to show us. This is why I wanted to share these two together, okay? Um, the second statement tonight, or the first one, really. Kingdom community begins and ends in prayer. We invite and attend to the presence of Jesus in all things first. You can see in all of this where prayer becomes so absolutely pivotal in this new creation world. Because a lot of times our tendency when we see things, we recognize the world is not right, is we freak out and we try to fix it ourselves, right? And we go out and we make a gigantic mess of things. We can see it in our world all around us right now, okay? Humans trying to fix it. This is where we have to remember, okay, this is what sets the people of Jesus apart, or it should, is that it's not us doing the restoring, right? It's not us doing the new creation. It is Jesus in us, right? It's not us that love the world so much, right? It's for God so loved the world, right? It's not us that love people that much. It's Jesus loving people through us. And so Jesus says, the Father is in me, and I am in you. And then later on in that same dinner, he would say it's like a vine and branches, right? Branches don't bear fruit unless they're connected to the vine, okay? Otherwise, they're just a branch hanging out in the middle of nowhere. No, you need to be, need to be connected. And so the process of new creation doesn't begin with action, right? It doesn't begin with us doing something. It begins with prayer. It begins with connection to God. And so we want to be a community of folks, right, who are coming together and connecting to God. I recognize that he's doing something, right? And these stirrings, these feelings, when we see something going on in the world that's wrong, that may be from him, but he invites us to come and see it through his eyes and then to begin to do what he's doing, right? And so we learn to love with his love and not our own. We need to learn to interact with the world as he does and not as we would, right? Sometimes when we connect to God, that means not doing what we would do if it were up to us, right? Because we see the results of that everywhere 
okay? And I could share story after story after story of the times when I just got stirred up. And I'm like, okay, we're going to go do it. We're going to get this thing done. And the glorious mess <laughs> that followed, right? And so these are our two core commitments. Kingdom community begins and ends in prayer. And we invite and intend to the presence of Jesus in all things first. But we maintain a state of readiness and anticipation because we know we know that Jesus is working and he wants to show us, right? New creation breaking in all around us.